Well, now, let me just explain one thing. Is uh, Acts is not Romans, and Romans is not Acts. Agape love is not. That's from, uh, uh, now, uh, St. Saint, Saint Augustine, you know, city on a hill. So, uh, now, David Hume. What do you want to talk about today? Uh, well, he sent me an email with, with some ideas, and I, I was all for those ideas, but I've forgotten what they I think are. I sent you, I think I sent you a, a text message, a, 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 a thing via Gmail, which always thinks that I'm there, and then it confuses you because you think I'm there, and I'm actually not. Well, you're, you're always marked as available in my buddy list. Yeah, I don't tell my wife that. Even at, even at you know, 6, 5 in the morning Eastern time, you're available? me? All the time. I can't, I can't control this thing. It's like a weather vane. I just got to hope the wind stops. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Rooster got a crow. I'm with you. I think we could do every episode about fear as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I think some, I mean, do you, when I was a kid, uh, it's not fashionable to like Norman Rockwell, but when I was a kid, we had this really, really cool like coffee table book of Norman Rockwell paintings. I, I think the guy's an amazing illustrator. It's easy to like take him to task for being this like silly sentimental guy, but the guy technically is is flawless. He did a wonderful series based on, um, um, I think it was FDR talked about the four. What is it? What do you call it? The four? You know, like basically the fears. Like there's the the fear of hungry, the fear of you know. I almost think we could do a series like his paintings. We could do a series on the different fears. I mean, even though in my head they're kind of all related. I'm with you. I what think- are what are the different fears? Let's see. Uh, there's the ontological fear, the teleological fear. There's the um, uh, fear from design. I think I'm making a Descartes joke, and now I may hate myself more than I ever have before. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess what I'm saying is – you'll cut all this out. I, I agree with you. I think, I think we could talk about fear just about every week because we end up talking about fear every week because that's ultimately where a lot of this stuff lands. I think um, – I hate to use the word honesty because then that sets me up as somebody who thinks he's really honest and I don't. But I think some flavor of almost every problem in some ways ultimately, ultimately, ultimately comes down to problems with are you seeing clearly, are you being honest, or are you being fearful and or both, you know? I think the second level up from that is a lot of problems have to do with people and expectations. But below the problem, the deeper, closer to the metal, if you like, is the problem of, I think, fear, um, yeah, I mean, it just it just kind of keeps coming back to that. It seems you know? like some people are are driven by fear, or <laughs> and that's actually like their motivator. And we've I, talked I, about this. Yeah, we sure. have talked about yeah. this. And and I tell me tell me more about tell me more about when you say that. And I when I hear you say that, sometimes you make it clear that you're talking about yourself too. Definitely talking about me because that's been much much less now than it was when I was younger. But perpetually there was always the fear. For me, one of the big fears was the financial security fear, which I've never, be, be, perhaps because of that fear, I've never actually been in like financial straits because I've been obsessively afraid of that. And, we, you know, it's, it, certainly to a fault. Whereas I know I know a lot of other people that are on, on the other side of that. And I think for whatever reason, maybe it's because when you know I grew up, we had we had no money. We were like mm-hmm. always right on the edge, always. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I think we talked about this in the last show, but there or not the the last show, but the last fear show that there was a uh, which I guess is every show. Uh, there the guy, you know, the guy who what's the name of the guy who owns the uh, the Cowboys, the football team, NFL team, Cowboys, Jerry. Just Jerry, like, is that the guy with the big head and the belt buckle? <laughs> yeah, that? that's him. No, that's the coach. Is that the coach? <laughs> Roger Starbucks, an astronaut. Is that right? So the the guy. Did I tell you I saw Philip Kaufman in an elevator on Sunday? Let's round back to that. Philip Kaufman? Yeah. I was in an elevator like right next to him. The guy who did the right stuff and a yeah. bunch of other stuff. Yeah. That's cool. Game. Did you say anything? No, no. My wife had to tell me who he was. Oh. He made a crack about central casting, and I laughed. I went, that's funny. <laughs> this elevator lady straight out of central casting. I went, that's funny. I like that movie. I love that story. I like, I like that movie you did. <laughs> I really like the right stuff. was a good movie. So Roger Staubach, who owns the, uh, the uh, Yankees, you were saying? Uh, Jerry Jones runs the, uh, owns right. the Cowboys. Who's Jerry, who's Jerry Johnson? What's Jerry Johnson? The... That, that's a Playboy centerfold. Is that right? 
No, that is the brother of uh, Jim Jones of the Guyana tragedy. Okay, okay, and 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 he is the uncle of uh, Robert Johnson, um, who was the one famous who was blues guitarist that was married to Mick Jagger. And that's Robert Hall. And that's Robert Penn Warren. <laughs> Christina Warren is the one that's on that show with you. Yeah, and Christina Pickles is the one that was on uh, ER. Is that right? Sweet Pickles, I think you're thinking. Okay, I think you're thinking of highlights. So the Cowboys are based in Dallas, which is which he is owns, near, uh, Fort Worth. He owns uh, this. And I saw an interview or heard an interview with him on 60 Minutes where he was saying, now he's a billionaire. And he was saying that every single thing that he does is driven by fear of potentially losing it all. And, and I guess the interviewer pointed out, well, it's unlikely you could put, lose it all right now, considering it, so much of your money is not invested. It's like in the bank kind of thing and that there's no way you could really lose it all today you're an incredible success. He's like, well, yeah, you say that, but I could. I feel like I feel like every day I could lose it all. And every game that we go and play, it, it feels like it's the last game we'll ever, you know, that, that whole kind of thing. And I, w- I wouldn't go to that extent, but I was, it, it, it's always on my mind that like, well, I, you know, need to, need to be conservative or a bit frugal because, you know, I grew up not, not feeling like there was a lot of financial security there, even though, you know, we always had a place to live. Uh, you know, my mom taught taught high school and, and college uh, English. You know, teachers don't make any money in this country. So there was always I, that I, for me. That was always a big motivator. It's much less for me now. And I've learned to, I've learned to have, I have a very different perspective on money than I did in my, you know, 20s. I was um, an almanac nerd, as we've discussed, or, you know, really a reference book nerd. <laughs> yeah. I just love reading. I love her. that. I just have, I have such a vivid picture in my mind of you sort of hunkered down over an almanac add more add more uh 16 ounce bottles of coke and more very large (laughs) bags of tom's potato chips and now a little more of a gut um a slightly dirtier nike shirt Mm -hmm. and now a much thicker book and that's me (laughs) and maybe like a home haircut home home haircut when we did pop for a haircut, it was like a $6 haircut. I've talked about this on the other today with this guy who was a total drunk. And I would just come out of there like literally like with a three quarters of an inch difference on the two sides. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. I think it was a place that mainly specialized in doing things to people's toupees. They had like these little privacy things. It's very weird. It's kind of like a cross <laughs> between a saloon and like a massage parlor, I, I assume. It's very weird. Um, Hetty, Hetty Green, was that her name? You remember in the Guinness Book of World Records, like the first – I, I read the Guinness Book of World Records every year. I would read almost like that, like, you know, the Book of Lists or like, you know, the People's Almanac. I mean, there were these certain books that I just would consume just over and over again. And of course, everybody remembers because it's at the beginning of the book. You remember Robert Earl Hughes, who weighed 1,069 pounds. You remember, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lucia, uh, Lucia Zarate, the very tiny woman on the table. Remember her? But you remember the, the picture of the world's greatest miser. You remember this? <laughs> no. <You> remember, <laughs> I'm sure that you can find this picture. Google for something like, I think it was Hetty Green. <laughs> and somebody at Guinness had decided that she was the world's greatest miser. And there's always the same picture of her. And I, I won't look. I'm I'm, I've got before. it. I've already got it. Is she like wearing like a, a very conservative black dress and hunched over looking like she's kind of like crossing the street and clutching her purse, something like that? Uh, th- this picture is more of a, of a bio picture, but I'm going to search. I'll okay. su- search Google images for that one. <sighs> But she was so cheap. She, I think she like she washed with with um, what is it? She like I don't know. She washed with like raw lye or something, and her she wouldn't give her son money. So he had ah, oh, there's the one. Wouldn't give her son money, so he had to have his arm amputated. <laughs> Just so awesome. And but you know, I think about my grandparents, especially. I think anybody who lived through the depression. Yeah. And um. We've talked about this, I think, a little bit before. But, you know, when you've seen, I mean, then in the Depression, or for that matter, Jesus, Europe. Let's just, let's avoid God when I just say Europe in the 30s and 40s. Like, you've seen stuff happen to other people's families. And let's be honest, a lot of the stuff that happened to other people's families, sure, you know, maybe you get drunk dead or something. But a lot of times, the stuff that happened to other people's families was way beyond their control. But... You know what I mean? Like if it was during the Irish potato famine or it was during, I mean, that was pretty serious. If it was during like one of the plagues or if it was during the Great Depression, you didn't have that, that much control. You, you just didn't have that many kids survive to begin with. Like if your kids, if your family like made it through uh, the flu epidemic, my grandma lost, I think, two siblings. Oh, to the man. Oh, no, this is, just, this is just what happened. 
<laughs> this wasn't like the 80s. This wasn't like Tyler and, uh, you know, Helicopter Marie just come out and everything's fine. It was like, this was, these were like, people died. It's just what happened. And I guess what I'm saying is if you made it through that and you fought and you like, in my grandfather's case, like I say, he had a job and stuff, but like you made it through that, you became what my family, you call him a string saver, like somebody who was forever looking for the next privation to come along. And so, you know, <laughs> one of my friends, his, her uh, grandfather was just like, he would save like every rubber band he got. He would clip off the top of a bag and it was just totally bizarre behavior, like hoarding behavior. And, um, I just think when you've been through something like that, you come out of it with – you may come out of it totally normal. But there's another part of you that – and I've argued with friends who came from slightly more means than I did because I think it's it's hard sometimes to, to really detect the support system you never realized you had unless you didn't have it. If you've missed a meal, like you have access to something that somebody else has never had. If you've never really wanted, then that's really a kind of a foreign concept to you. If you've almost wanted, which it sounds like in your case you have, then that's made you very conservative. But I mean, like Elvis, again, let's talk about Elvis. You know, Elvis had all the money in the world, but wasn't happy because in some ways he was still the same poor kid. I mean, Humbert Humbert, again, <laughs> you know, in Lolita, Lolita's not really about having like, like doinking a kid. It's really about trying to get something back that you're never going to be able to get back, which is this almost <laughs> relationship he had as like a very young teen. And I think Gatsby, any of those, it's all similar stories. It's about this yearning for something or this fear of something. That's kind of what literature is about in a lot of ways. Proust, you name it. I, forgive me if I'm repeating an entire episode. Right no, here. I don't think you are at all. But I, it's something I think about a lot. I mean, what is it that makes for great literary stories? And in some ways, it is somebody who either refuses to learn a lesson or is like trying to learn, learn the wrong lesson. I mean, I think that's a lot of what makes such a great literary character, whether that's, you know, Jay Gatsby or David Brent. It's somebody who has some kind of a, a disconnect between reality and fear, right? Between seeing clearly and fear, those things we talked about, right? David Brent thinks he's pulling it off. That's what makes David Brent funny. When David Brent looks at the camera, there's like four things going on. He's thinking he pulled it off. He's realizing he did it. And then when David Brent looks at the camera, he realizes it's, it's game over because now he's clocked and he's seen being clocked. And that's what makes it funny because he thought he was getting away with it, right? Um, and so he, he, you know, his fear of not being accepted by his fellow Swindon office mates causes him to do all this stuff that <laughs> is really asinine. Hetty Green, you know, I don't know what her background is. Maybe she didn't give her son money because she thought, oh, I might need that someday. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, I, I don't want to sound glib and say that it's, it really is about being happy and not being rich because it sure, sure helps to be able to pay the bills. But I do think we all, remember what we said, uh, what is it, last episode, talking about the, you know, protecting your favorite keloid kind of thing. <laughs> and I think we do that. Why is that so funny to you? Do you know the song <laughs> I'm talking about? You don't even know the song. I don't know the song you're talking about. <laughs> if I could do it. There was a moon and a street lamp. I didn't know I talked such a lot. No, oh, I didn't know I drank such a lot. Till I pissed at tequila and a kind of the full length of the parking lot. Oh, oh, oh I talked too loose. What, we do the whole song? Yes. Again, I talk too open and free. I pay a high price for my open talking like you do for your side of mystery. And then, um, oh, it's a Shakespeare <laughs> line. From the, uh, the keloids, from the slings and arrows of outrageous romance. I stole that from Willie the Shake. Either a bar or a lender be Romeo, Romeo. How do I know so many words to a goddamn Joni Mitchell song? Am I gay? Be honest. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that those two are well, required really? to see that proves that proves that you're straight. Oh man, let's start over. Keloids. So you get your favorite keloid, and I think you really do start trying. It becomes a, a kind of a kind of a comfort. And college and, roommate had a keloid up on his the top of his shoulder. Gone top. Huh. Like on, Did he get stabbed by Joni Mitchell? <laughs> I heard I heard once she got a couple under her belt. I, I, I don't want to sound massage. She got a little bitchy. That's what I heard. Uh-huh. I heard. I heard you're going to be wearing that zither. That's what I heard. You're going to have a dulcimer up your ass. That's what I heard. Here you go. You want to be with blue? I'll make you blue. I'll make you black and blue. You like that? Songs are like tattoos. Boom. You like that? Very abusive person, Joni Mitchell. Very abusive person. I didn't know this. Oh, are you kidding me? Oh man, go ask James Taylor. He's still he's still in a fetal position. Terrible thing. David Geffen. There's a reason he he uh, flew away from uh, Carly Simon. He's scared of women now because of Joni Mitchell. What can't you ship? Hmm. Who me? Yeah, she's a good guitar player. I'll tell you that she's a really good guitar player. Yeah. Did this this music thing that you did? Did you 
start on that this morning? I mean, how long does something like that take you to put together? Are we referring to the thing on the show? Yeah. We People that. haven't heard it yet. Oh. Oh, so this is the second part of our rock opera for MailChimp. Um, no, I started it. I started, you know, I, I, this is not interesting, is it? It's interesting. It's not interesting, is it? People yeah. can, they, people play this at double speed anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Breaks my heart. Hmm. Shame on you. Shame on you for playing this at double speed. This episode of Back to Work is sponsored by MailChimp.com. MailChimp makes it easy to design email newsletters and share them on social networks, integrate with web services that you love. And you can design these things yourself using your own HTML and CSS, or you can use the amazing templates that are made by people like Dan Rubin, Elliot J. Stocks, John Hicks, Koi Vin. And uh, you can think of it as your own personal publishing platform for newsletters. There's some really cool integrations, all the geek stuff that you would expect, social sharing, integration with Facebook, A-B split testing, Google Analytics, autoresponse, all the geek stuff that you want. You can even integrate it with your iOS application. And here's the cool part, 12,000 emails a month to up to 2,000 subscribers. It's all free. There's never been a, a better time to go check it out. MailChimp.com. Thanks uh, very much to them for supporting the show. Did you ever have albums when you were growing up and have a 35 millimeter or whatever it was? A 30, <laughs> 35 millimeter player? Yeah. I did. I did. I had a 50, I had a 50 <laughs> millimeter lens on my uh, 78 <laughs> player and I would, I would crank it really hard and then we'd get up and we'd do the Lindy. It was simpler times then. So how do you conquer a fear that's, that's like that? For, you know, if, you have, if you have one of those ingrained fears, especially well, a, a money fear, how do you address that? For me, it was... <laughs> Don't it, ask me. I mean, I'm, yes, you know, I'm terrible with money. I'm, I'm awful at it. But I'll tell you what I, what, I, what I really do believe. I mean, and, you know, we could get into the whole, like, that's fine for Merlin stuff about this, except, of course, I'm not particularly rich. But I, I, think, I think the thing, and again, this goes... To, I don't want to talk about the B-double-O-K. But, like, I, I really am starting to believe that I wouldn't go so far as to say what Seth Godin says of like, if I'm scared of it, I do it. Like, I think that's a, for me, that's a little oversimplified. Uh, and by which I mean way oversimplified. Uh, but I do think that if I find myself trying to come up with a lot of patches and hacks for something in order to like either do it or avoid doing it, I'm trying to get better at catching myself and going, wait a minute, why am I scared of this thing? Or why am I not doing this thing? Hmm. And for me, a lot of the times, you know what I'm scared of is inconvenience. I'm such a white middle-class guy. I don't like being inconvenienced. I don't want to have to go somewhere to drive somewhere to pay a bill. I don't want to have to go to jury duty, whatever. Not, not that I'm against jury duty. It's just I space the thing and then I forget to call or whatever. And it's, I, think, I think everybody's got these little stupid, embarrassing things about them that they just don't like, like in themselves and don't like dealing with in themselves. And I'm trying to get better rather than going... And, and this does get to a more fundamental point that I care about, which is the whole, like, I'm going to change overnight to become this other person. Well, that's for the birds. That's, that doesn't happen. I mean, that's just going to make you more unhappy. Otherwise, you would have already changed. The thing that I'm starting to realize is to, uh, that, that, you know, mindfulness is the hack all the time. It's always mindfulness. And mindfulness is realizing that there's a pattern that started to, uh, a path, if you like, that's, that's starting to get sort of beaten down in these certain kinds of behaviors. And so I need to catch myself and, and, and say this is something I want to work on. And I'm talking, we can be specific about this, but with fear in general, I'm really trying to catch myself in an almost really CBT-like way, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy-like way, and say, wait a minute, I don't want to admit to myself that I've been obsessing over this thing that I'm anxious or fearful of, and the more I try to not think about that, the worse it gets. It's, it's very dukkha in its way, mm. yes? Yeah. Don't you think the more you try to push that down, the worse it gets? And, and so for myself, I'm trying to... In, in, like I say, in a slightly CBT-like way, say, wait a minute, stop, 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 stop. And at what point am I coming up with some crazy Rube Goldberg contraction, contract, contraption to avoid or um, forestall this anxiety or fear that I perceive is out there? And at what point does that become so much overhead that I become like almost some kind of marionette of my own design, like with just strings and armatures? trying to conduct myself from a distance. Not so different, I must say, to me, from the distraction-free writing environment stuff. When I was trying to write my first book, I would do crap like I'd put up a, I would do a simulation of the whole, like, only show me one line. Or like I would cover my monitor so I couldn't even see the words I was typing. And it was stupid. I mean, one reason I get emotional about that stuff is that's not the way to address that fear. The way to address that fear is to say, well, wh why is it that I'm having this problem? Not how do I buy more devices to make me feel like this is the solution. I mean, that's one reason I'm emotional about stuff like that is because I know it's BS. And they know it's BS too, the people who make it. it you know, it, if, you, if you like stuff like that, that's great. But to act like that's going to fix the problem is nuts. 
you know, in the same way that like, you know, the Band-Aid is going to be fine for covering the hypodermic needle uh, hole after you've had surgery, but you still need the surgery. <laughs> Just buying more Band-Aids is not going to fix the, the, the problem. And I think, I, you know, I, I'm really, what I'm trying to avoid, Dan, the reason I'm being so circuitous is I'm really trying to avoid what I perceive as some total cliches about fear that are not effective. I mean, I, I find myself coming very close to saying, feel the fear, but do it anyway, except that it is so cliche to say that, and it's not, it's not strictly what I believe. It's very close to what I believe, but it's not precisely what I think. There's just so much horse about fear out there and how to deal with it that it becomes this din of terrible advice that ends up making you have this fake smile or this fake confidence, and then you don't, a lot of people don't actually do anything. Mm. They're so, they're so, like, it's the same kind of problem to me as, as in some ways as, like, the whole motivational poster problem. You know, if you, if you accept that stuff long enough, even just allowing it in your office, it's a background lie. You know, it's sitting there all the time perniciously, like, trying to become part of your reality. And I think you have to push that stuff away with force, the same way you would push a distraction away with force. And if you catch yourself trying to do something really screwy, to avoid something you're anxious about, it's a really, that's a teachable moment. And for myself, I'm not always ready to be taught. Sometimes it'll take me 15 years. But then one day I might go, wait a minute, I need to like, I need to address this some way more directly, the most direct way I can. And sometimes it's by picking up the phone and calling somebody. Sometimes it's by, you know, a lot of times for me, it is human relationship stuff Hmm. where I'm like, I haven't talked to this person in a long time and I feel bad. Or there's just this thing that has gone on Okay, classic you look nice today example. You know, Scott's true story. About, oh, is that a show you do with Adam? Oh, my God. I'm, you know what I'm going to put this on? I'm going to put this on right here. Pack of fives. I'm going to give you a Joni Mitchell right in the nose. God. <laughs> Scott, for years, this is true apparently, would go to the, uh, by the paper factory where he works. He would go and buy bagels, and they knew his name, but he didn't know theirs. Everybody's had this. You, you, were you like, I've had this in relationships with friends because I – have such a broken hard drive of a brain that I and I'm so inattentive that I don't remember, I don't encode people's names well. It happens to me constantly. And the thing is, the first time you meet somebody, by the end of the conversation, if you've forgotten their name, you can say, you know what? I, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Can and you they say, say that? Can you look look at them and say that? In in that in the first conversation you have with them? That's oh, okay. God. Uh I hope. Right. I mean Oh, if I get, but it gets worse. It gets way worse because then you have another. And in my case, I, that second, like I didn't even hear it. I'm already thinking about something else. So I already blew my one, like, um, <laughs> my one dignified chance to fix that. I said, no, I don't know. Now I've got I've to come up with tricks. But it, seriously, it could go on and on and on and on until it could go on for years. And I've forgotten that person's name or I've forgotten some key fact about them or I've forgotten that we had this conversation or something like that. And then I have to introduce them to somebody else and it becomes apparent that I am completely out of my mind. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I, I think we all have that. I hope you have that. You don't have that? You've got a good memory, right? Yeah, for certain things. Yeah, I don't know, Dan. I think I'm just screwy. I think I'm just screwy. But well, there, there's something you touched on earlier, and you were the talking only thing about. The to finish there is there's never a good day to say to that person, "Hey, I know I've been pretending to have this relationship where I know your name, but I don't know your name." There's never a good day to do that. You both feel terrible, and the only way to do it is to do it. Either that, or do something tricky, like steal their card, steal their uh, driver's license, or something. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> you have not done that. What was I getting at? Earlier on, you you touched on a. The concept of mindfulness being the the hack, yeah, the hack, and one of the things that it makes me think of is in, in Buddhism they talk about mindfulness as sort of being it leads to what they call wise action. They also use the term right action, uh, in right not being like right and wrong, but right in, in the mm-hmm. concept of like the right tool for the right job kind of right. And that's, 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 and that's the way they refer to all the eightfold path, right? Is correct. Right as in yeah, exactly. It's not right as in good and correct it's it's right as in like straight like your spine yeah it's right as in like yeah it's yeah. hard to, it's hard to explain but it's it's a it's very it's a subtle concept that means a lot and they they say that when you're you have right action that what you're actually doing is you're examining or you're you don't you're not taking actions or or thoughts or or reinforcing thoughts that are based on unexamined or habitual thought patterns and a lot of these things, that, according to Buddhism, is that everybody, when they're growing up, 
as you know, they, they evolve through infancy and childhood, they're developing what you could call bad habits, bad uh, solutions to deal with the suffering in the world that, that, that everybody is going to experience. And be, pretty much we all have these bad habits. We all have really poor and poorly developed ways that typically they're the best ways we can figure out. But they're all really, really bad when you come to deal with suffering because there's a lot of suffering in, in everybody's life. Even people who you would who would even define themselves as being happy, there's still a lot of suffering there if you really look at it. Mm-hmm. And you were you were talking about mindfulness in, in that sense. For me, that's been a, a big way to deal with things like fear. You know, being being very aware of what you're actually feeling and experiencing, be, being very uh cognizant of the fact that you're potentially reinforcing something that you created as a habit that is is really just a thought process it's not anything that's real and and what uh, i don't even know how to ask this question but i i i, I mean I, I couldn't i couldn't reel off all the eightfold path uh, right this second but where where does that teaching kind of uh, come from well, I, yeah, I mean, all of it, uh, all of it is sort of tied in. I mean, the the eightfold path itself is more like this is this is the way that you if if you want to if you want to kind of get out of this whole suffering concept, right? If 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 you want to figure a way out of it, the the this is the path that you could be on uh, to do that, right? Well, I mean that that's that's really what it is, and it's, yeah, I'm just curious. I don't, I'm not, you know, it's, I'm, I don't know. They I, break it I'm, down into three different groups. Like it starts. I, I can, I can, I might get these out of order. Right understanding, right in, intention, mm-hmm. right speech. That's the tough one. Right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Mm-hmm. Right speech is a tough one for most what, people. Why do, you, why do you say that? Uh, because people, especially people like me who talk for a living, uh, but in general, people are not, you know, you're not really always aware of what you're saying when you say it. I mean, you, and, you it's, and it's not even just about being truthful. That's part of it. It's part also of it. about being economical. Yeah. Oddly enough for me to point out. Is that, isn't that correct? No, absolutely correct. And that's, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> like uh you know t- George in the meetings being a chucker you know it's it's sort of like you don't want to be a chucker in in saying the right thing means sometimes not saying things sometimes saying things i all of this stuff and so i don't know how to put this in a way that doesn't sound a little bit uh squirrely and california incense kind of stuff but <laughs> yeah. um there's just i have this client that i like a lot who like a lot of my clients uses this word like alignment hi if you're out there t um alignment so you got to get alignment, you know, like between your business units or whatever. And it's, right. it's one of those words that I don't love. But I think uh, uh, if I understand, as I understand Buddhism, which is very, very perfunctory, um, you're kind of aligning yourself when you say the right this or right that, right concentration, right action, and so on. It's, a, it's an idea of saying, like, I'm aligning myself with something that's bigger than me. And, and to, I don't know where I stole this quote from, but I find myself saying it twice a month. Um, believe it or not, coming from me, you can either be the water or you can be the rock. There's a lot of times where I say to myself, you know what? In this situation, I can either be the water or the rock. Mm. And I'm done trying to be the rock. The, the rock has some, has some really hard work. <laughs> you know, if, in, why, why does that relate to what we're talking about? Well, if you have a big enough fear about something, the, the fear may not be movable. The, the fear, mm. and, well, it could be a fear of money, a, a money thing. It could be a fear. Let's get to some of the really more serious and pernicious ones. I mean, fear of money is tough, but you can get a bunch of money. Um, fear of never being loved is really hard for a lot of people. Fear of abandonment. Like how many people do you know who, if you really, if they're really honest, including us, like I I think I used to have that more than I do now, but that can be really pernicious. Mm -hmm. Um, Fear of not being loved. I mean, there are people out there who do some pretty crazy stuff because there's no bank account that can hold enough love to make them feel secure. In the same way that you worry uh, about financial privation, there are other people who can't have a relationship more than six months because they end up undermining it. I mean, again, you got to talk to a therapist to, to get a better, straighter version of this, but I've seen this a million times. People who end up undermining their own relationships because they don't trust themselves to be able to, to pull it off. People, and the more you love that person, the more they become this sink for legitimate, um, you know, 
it's almost like they drop these bits of affection. There's only so many bits of affection that they can accept before there's a buffer overrun and they just flip. And uh, I, think, I think that's a really tough one because there's no way you're ever going to – if you at the heart of it don't feel like you get enough love from people, you're never going to have enough love. I don't know how you fix that. There certainly could be a chemical component to that, I'm sure. Um, but at the heart of it, again, back to that Alan Watts book, The Wisdom of Insecurity. It's such a great, it's such a great little book. Um, you know, the thesis of the wisdom of insecurity, like a lot of Watts' stuff, is saying, hey, look, guys, you know, the more locks you put on your door, the less safe you become in a lot of ways. First of all, because you're ultimately just increasing the appearance of security when actually what you're doing is, is making yourself, it's actually much more dangerous now for you because you think you're safe, but also it's harder to get out of your own house if you have to, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> and I, and when I, I were all over the map with this, but I, it's really hard. This is like nailing jelly to a tree, a lot of this stuff, because you may see it, you may not really see it until it's in practice and you go, oh, that's that thing. Oh my gosh, isn't it weird that uh, I call myself a serial monogamous, but actually I'm just this person who leaves a lot of disappointed and confused people behind every six to eight months. You ever known anybody like that? Right? Yeah. And, and so, but I think there's a lot of these kinds of fears. There's, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, in some ways, at the, uh, there's, there's a fear behind a lot of these ones we're talking about, which is a fear of ultimately being alone. And um, I think that's what makes some of us class clowns. I think it's what makes some of us study really hard. It's what makes some of us want to be uh, the most popular person on Facebook. And I, I think at the heart of it, there's at the center of this in a way no one is comfortable admitting is a fear of ultimately being alone. And in some ways, that's first or – I don't remember. The first or second thing in the four uh, – the truths, right? What, what is it called? What, what are the four – The four noble four, truths? Yeah. I mean one of them is that – I mean at the heart of it – let's see. So life is suffering – um, second one is, uh, the, you can reel them off for me. What are the four, what are the four noble truths? want to hear the four noble truths? Give me the four noble truths. I know them. I just don't know them right now. And I'm not going to Google them cause I'm not that guy. No, you, and you, you don't have to. Basically there, these, these are the things that the, the Buddha came to when, after I don't know how many years uh, of, of of searching, and this is These basically are the signs what, by the pool called life in giant red letters that <laughs> right. will, will not change no matter how much you want the pool rules the, to change. The pool, the pool called life. I'm going to write that down. Pool <laughs> called life. Uh, okay, so a lot of people read the first one as life is suffering. He actually didn't say that. He he said something more like in in life there is suffering, or maybe even. I've always, there, taken there is suffering, the suffering I've always taken it to be that's the baseline state of life. Right, the, kind the, of. When life, the homeostatic state of life is an imbalance called suffering or not desire exactly. We've talked about this translation poly deal in the past, but right. the, the, I've taken it to mean this sense of, uh, oh, what was your wonderful word for this? Unsatisfaction? Right, something about incompletion. Yeah, dis- dissatisfaction. Yeah, that's what I think. I think Duke and I mean not just simply like suffering or yearning, but also this this sense of unquenchable, uh, un exactly unachievable balance. Right, dis that, dis that's just what that's what life is. Life mm-hmm. is imbalance. And the, the second noble truth says that um, the suffering that exists comes from clinging. It comes from attachment to basically to desires of various kinds, and. The third noble truth is that there there is a, a way out of suffering, and that happens when uh, the clinging is is gone. And the eightfold path is the way to practice freedom from suffering. And we already read the yep. eightfold path. But you know, there's something in that I'm probably making up. But I, <clears throat> I, I, what I, it sounds simple, about, but it's not very simple. If you it's think, not about simple it. at all. And that eightfold path. It's it's like Atkins or uh, or probably Paleo. You know, it's something where like it seems really easy, but um, you know, looks like folding that piece of paper seven times. Right. <laughs> Once you got to do it, it's a lot harder. <clears throat> I um, I think that being alone is a big part of it, though. I think a big part of that suffering and a big part of that imbalance for most of us, and a big part of what the Buddha talks about is you're going to die alone, dude. You came into this world alone. You're going to go out of it alone, and what happens in between is kind of up to you in a lot of ways. Um, that's why I, one reason I find Buddhism such a muscular, as we've, we've discussed before, I, I do consider it a little more of a psychology, I think, than a faith, although I would love what you say about it being a faith. But that's what I like about it is it could hardly be more practical than it is. It's a practical guide to like living in a way. I, I think to be honest, as our emerging rock opera will show my interest in Judaism, there's a lot about Judaism. I like a lot, like really old school Judaism. 
is is pretty cool in some ways. I mean, the the Talmudic stuff is super interesting to me because it really is about this ongoing debate about how to live a good life, right? And and not just in this like poster of a boat way. In this like, no, wait, how should how should our tribe of people behave with each other in order to take care of each other and do the right thing? And and I that's what I get out of Buddhism as well. And we may seem hopelessly off track if we ever were on track, but I, I think it, it does get back to this basic point of this inward turning. In returning constant yearning that we have is uh, – I'm sorry, could you capture that? I think the next one's going to be a Dylan bit. The, um, no, but that yearning is, is tough because first of all, it, 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 it comes from inside and it lives inside mm-hmm. and it tries to find its resolution inside of us. And, and the only way that we get past that is to, I think, in some ways admit that it's inside of us and then externalize it. And that's why so much of that about fear is kind of true. Like, feel the fear of doing it anyway. And by the way, I cannot find a source for that quote earlier than 2007. I've heard it attributed to a lot of people. So one reason I don't use it is because I can't attribute it to anybody but this video blogger, who I'm pretty sure isn't the originator of it. But, um, but there's lots of stuff like that. I mean, I, I think on some level that is, that is true. I, um, I, I think but, – but what is it about that confrontation of the fear – you know, that, that cranking thing I wrote, I had that crack about how, you know, threats are mo- mainly become like the grist for interesting stories after they've passed. Like, think about how many things you've survived are just kind of a funny joke now. Something that at the time seemed like the worst thing in the world. Well, that's because at the time they were disruptive. They set you off balance. And if you weren't a centered person, like I'm certainly not a centered person, it's really easy to feel thrown off balance to the point where you respond so emotionally to whatever is happening to you, whether it's losing your job or whether it's the threat of losing your job or whether it's the thought of the threat of losing your job. And so, do you know what I'm saying? I think that is just as real as getting fired. It's, in some ways, it's a relief to get fired. It's like getting a cold sore. It's like, oh, finally, at least now I've got a cold sore and I can get rid of it. Or, or, or whatever your version of that is. I have a bad immune system. But, uh, but it's, worse, it's worse to wonder in some ways, right? This is the anxiety versus fear thing. And again, that all resides inside of us all the time. And it just sits there on this really slow boil. This really just warm burner, and it never goes away. And that ex- I think that expresses itself as things like the keloid, the friendly keloid problem. It exhibits itself as, oh, my God, why does Joni keep going out with those guys that are abusive like her alcoholic dad? Mm. <laughs> I think that familiar problem thing keeps cropping up. And I think it's all because in some ways we never find a voice or a, um, a hook for that thing that only lives inside of us that keeps us off balance. And, and to your point, this is to me where this breaks wide open in a way that is totally relevant to this show. Um, how many times have we used phrases like drinking salt water? We talked, up, talked about that, I think, in S1E1. You know, the problem with all this life hack crap is like a lot of it, the, the, the third generation life hacks crap, is it's not helping you. It's not helping you. Doing that is a waste of time. You are making your problem worse because you're not only not addressing the real problem, you're not even fixing the fake problem. You're just, you're just out like buying solutions that have no use. It's like using your plunger to fix the hole in your roof in a lot of ways. It's just that now you're reading a list of which 7,000 plungers are the most effective. Picks. And so um, I think that relates to a lot of the stuff that we talk about. Because that fear on the, on the one hand and that inability to see clearly can have such an accretive effect to create what you know, a phrase you hear a million times but you may not really think about. We hear that phrase, positive feedback loop. Because I don't think most people know exactly what that means. Mm. Like you ever, when you're a little kid, uh, I do this with my daughter sometimes when we're taking a bath. You ever do that thing where you swoosh a little bit back and forth in the bathtub and you make a wave that's resonant with exactly how your body's moving? Yeah. And then you move a little bit and suddenly that wave becomes twice as big? Well, that's synergy. That's what actual synergy in the physics world of physics means is that there are – there's an additive, additive, is that right, additive? There's an effect to this where these two things together can make a much bigger thing. That's what a positive feedback loop is. That's what, if you're a musician, digital delay is. When you turn the feedback up, what it means is it's hearing itself. It is, if you like, to quote my friend, uh, was it Michael, Richard, Michael? Michael and Richard. The only listeners to our show, I think, are Michael and Richard. Oh, and Keith Richards, he's the one that was married to Jerry Hall. <laughs> and so, um, Stuart Hall was the, uh, was the, uh, so, positive feedback loop is an echo chamber in your head <clears throat> in, this, in this sense. So when you're feeding yourself this information that you think is helping, whether it's your problem with productivity or whether it's your bad self-esteem or whether you think it's the fact that, that nobody's ever going to love you enough, if you keep feeding crap to that 
feedback loop, it's going to keep processing that in this garbage in, garbage out way. I, this is not making a lick of sense, probably. But if you no, just no, no, severe, this is I'll good. tell you this. Here's the thing. I'll tell you this. If I had to simplify this all down to one stupid thing, mm. take the one thing. Just be mindful for one morning, maybe tomorrow morning. Be mindful for this afternoon, whenever you hear this. And be mindful to a voice you never heard before. So just listen to yourself for a minute. And not a voice that you're even familiar with, but there's some voice in your head that's there and you don't realize it. In the same way you may not realize uh, Abba's knowing me, knowing you is in your head, <clears throat> which it is now. Uh-huh. <laughs> this time we're through. We're really through. It's in your head now. Knowing me, knowing you by Abba. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> and you'll hear that voice. And there is a voice in there somewhere that's telling you. It could be, you know what? Maybe you're some big shot. Maybe you're Donald Trump. And that voice is telling you how awesome you are. But there's a chance that there's that voice in your head that's, that's acting in like a kind of Greek chorus where it's doing a little commentary on almost everything that you're doing. And I, I know people who walk around and that voice is evidenced in them talking to themselves, like healthy, mentally healthy people who would just kind of walk around and have this internal dialogue or internal monologue, if you like. But listen for that voice and, and see if, if maybe it, it's – see if it's maybe telling you something that, that's more interesting than you realized. Because if you're – if that inner voice, that inner monologue is speaking and the only one that's listening is also that voice, that's a positive feedback loop. And so maybe next time you hear that voice and it goes, oh, she's mad at you, she's mad at you, she's mad at you, mad at you, mad at you, mad at you. Find yourself going, is she mad at me? And actually say it out loud. And then why don't you go to that person and say, are you mad at me? Or something like that. Like, again, this is very CBT. But get, what's the point of all this? Get it out of you. Get it out of you now. Like take a crazy thought and put it in the world. Write it down. This is, this is something you can do called writing where you write about something. And then you can find out if it's true. That's a really neat thing you can do. It's called writing. And you have a keyboard where you can write. And then you write about that. And then you go, wait a minute, is that true? And then you can write more about it. <laughs> but getting that out of your head is so giant. Because if it's just in your head, it's always going to sound normal. Because it becomes so distorted. And I don't know. Dan, I'm rambling. Is this no, making- not at all. And I, this touches on, a, on another subject that where I'm, I'm forgetting who it was. It was one of my meditation teachers. Not a, an in-person teacher, but an internet teacher. You know, you can learn a lot from these podcasts I listen to. Like Gil Fronstall, that guy's yeah. a machine. And I'm wondering if I'm wondering if it wasn't him. I'll attribute it I'll attribute it to him because I it, typically if I do that I'm I'm usually safe. It usually was him. And one of the things that he asked uh if it was him was do you, he was talking about thoughts and he said something along the lines of do you believe your own thoughts? Right. You, yeah, you mentioned this once before. That's yeah. such a great And quote. I I I'm reminded of that when you bring this up because it's something that you almost want to question it. I'm not saying the thoughts are, are from somebody else, but it, uh, you know, is that something, do, do you ever question your own thoughts? Most people have that running dialogue, that running narration in their mind uh, that that's ongoing that, that they think of. And if it's funny because you talk about writing it down, getting it out. If you, if you, if somebody else, imagine if the person next to you, could hear your thoughts. I'm not talking about the thoughts of like, oh man, that that lady's perfume is terrible. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the sort of obsessive, re- repetitive, unhealthy, or as we would say, unskillful uh, concepts uh, that you you go through in your head that are completely nuts. That you kind of, if you were to <laughs> look at them, you would know that they're nuts. And one of the one of the benefits for me of meditation, it took me probably two years of meditating. But that constant dialogue that most, I, I know at least it was true for me, but I've, I've heard it's true for most people, that there's sort of an ongoing narration in your head as you walk around doing things. Yes. And sometimes that narration it's has... It's like having comments. It's like having comments enabled in your li- on your life. <laughs> right. Life. But, but you're, they're you're your the own... Spammer. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're spamming yourself. And, and as you walk around, there are these comments that are going on. Sometimes they have everything to do with what you're doing at that moment. And other times they're something completely unrelated there that about the movie you saw the other day or whatever. And it took me a couple of years of meditating every day, every morning for 30, 45 minutes, an hour every morning. And eventually that kind of, I don't want to say it stopped, but it became something that when it happens, I'm aware of it and I can n- note that it's happening. And sometimes it'll, it'll just kind of go away. Uh, and that for me was the biggest, one of the biggest changes, the liberating changes was thinking uh, that, that 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 doesn't need to be there for mo- for many people. I think that's just assumed that that's what your mind does. That's what, it, and it is. It typically is, but it, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. It's true. 
Do you um, believe your own thoughts? Too often, yeah. I, too I often. sure do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> I remember the joke about, uh, we're talking about, you know, the guy, my friend's, uh, you know, cousin who pulls the whiskers out of cats and I made the crack about how that feels so real. You can just, <laughs> you can th- think and talk yourself into almost anything, even, and even or especially when you don't realize that you are. And yeah. just sitting here thinking, a piece of advice that somebody gave me once that has stood me in good stead. It was presented to me as a how how to deal with girls piece of advice, but I think it's true of everyone. Um, although it's especially true of women, I have to be honest. Uh, especially given the problem of male answer syndrome, but it takes a long time for a lot of men, in particular. Um, and I don't know if this is just a heterosexual thing, but a lot of times, um, women, especially like smart women, like really just want to tell you something. They don't want to hear what you think about it. They don't want to hear your opinion, and they definitely don't want your help. They just want you to shut up and listen. Sorry, <laughs> Jim. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes they just want to talk and have you listen and not offer an opinion and not try to fix it. Right, but the natural response for most guys is to try to solve a problem. Okay, hold on. Let me hear what you're saying. Okay, here's how you have to solve this problem. Which for is at ex- least a, For at least a couple reasons. I mean, one is exactly that I, not what the woman wants to hear absolutely not. It's the worst thing you can do uh, apart from just ignoring her and like watching TV <laughs> or something. Might, might be better. But it's, I, <laughs> sometimes no is a pretty cool name <laughs> to quote, uh, cool hand Luke. This episode of back to work is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp also asked me to write a rock opera about Dan. Here's part two. That was Then When, the second movement from Sometimes There's a Man, a rock opera about Dan Benjamin, commissioned by our friends at MailChimp. MailChimp. They sponsored this episode, and then they totally asked us to write a rock opera, because that's just how they roll. MailChimp. Uh, the, um, but there's, I think, at least a couple reasons. I mean, I think, I think one is that, um, that, yeah, I think a lot of men do feel like they're fixers. Right. And, and, and also let's be honest, a lot of guys, especially dumbasses are like, okay, okay, okay. What's the point? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? What's my, like, what's my next action here? If you like, and you could say that's true of women, but I think ultimately it is really true of a lot of people. And actually, let me just give a shout out to Gil Fransdahl in, in one of his, um, gosh, I forget. He has so many podcasts and they're, pre- they're mostly pretty good. There's one where this was woman asked a question, um, during one of his seminars and, uh, it was really good, and the question – it was really – I guess it was a comment more than a question, but she talked about how part of her practice is that she – I guess she believes that you can just be there for somebody, and you're not there to do anything but just be there with them, especially you know if they're grieving. God, this is so true for grieving. Please don't tell people to feel better. Please don't tell them that they need to get over it. Just – <laughs> the, 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 I have, when somebody's grieving, uh, like a, a, the death of someone, like I've tried, I've learned through painful experience to just say nothing. I mean, no, no, not, not just not to offer anything as a solution. <laughs> it's the worst thing you can do. If I feel close enough to somebody that I can offer something, I'll say, I, I hope each day feels a little less horrible is what I will sometimes say. Mm. But you never tell somebody, oh, buck up. Oh, it's not that bad. They're in a better place now. You know what? Shut up. That's, and that's true. Again, you could say that I know that's true for everybody, regardless of gender or orientation. But, but to just finish that one thought, I'm, I think I'm going somewhere with this. Maybe not. We need to button this up. But, the, um, but just listening, just being there in the room with somebody to hear somebody. Think about that. Think about what, if you actually have the stones, if you have the guts to sit there and listen to your crazy 
voice because you do have a crazy voice, guys. I know you think you don't. You know you're sitting there and you know you're sitting there in your Python listening to podcasts, but, but you know maybe you're listening <laughs> to podcasts because you don't want to hear the creepy voice. The creepy voice is probably in there somewhere, and you might want to listen to it. Well, that and goes you know back. What? That goes back, Merlin, to why people don't want to be alone because then they, that's all they've got. Precisely, especially if you've gotten in the habit of trying to like count on other stuff to shout that voice down. Um, we don't have enough time to tie all of this together, but this kind of starts. We're starting to tie a lot of this together because here's the thing. Also, like, what if you decided? Um, I'm not precisely back into meditation yet, but I'm getting close. Um, and the whole reason I started mentioning this about the listening part is that before you can ever fix a problem, like a lot of problems don't need to be fixed. A lot of problems just need to be known. And I'll tell you, when I talk to clients, to be honest, it's a very difficult thing for me to say to them sometimes is that before you, before I try to find a solution to anything, I just want to understand what the, what the problem is as best I can. And a lot of people skip the test of asking people what they think the problem is. I can't believe how many people, they say, well, what do you want to come in and talk about? And I say, well, what, is your, what, are your, what does your team want to hear? And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, well, presumably you're bringing me in because people have like heard the podcast or they've heard the blah, blah, blah. Like, do they, you just said Inbox Zero because somebody told you to go watch that. Have you asked them what they want? Have you asked whether they want me there at all? Like, you know, <laughs> you're trying to fix a problem and you haven't even asked anybody if it's a problem. And I think we do that all the time, men, women, everybody. We, we, but like, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, as I move closer to, to something like a meditation practice, my first step has been a very CBT-like thing of realizing when I'm getting panicky and anxious about something. Mm, just being and aware, just saying, oh, just, that's just this. Day, day zero, day negative right, zero, right. mindfulness of just going, okay, and now focus the breath on that part of the nostril and just breathe and just be here for a minute. Catch my, catch my shoulders coming up toward my neck. Catch myself race with racing thoughts. Catch myself going, you know what? I've had this iPod on all day long. I wonder what I would think and hear if I took it off and just listen. And I'm not trying to be some hippie. I'm not. I sit around and I listen to the whole study like a lot. I listen to the Wrens like a lot. I listen to my own podcast like a lot. I'm just saying that sometimes if you take off the headphones, you can hear the voice. And, and just to tie it all kind of together, like what if you decided to just be there and listen to the voice? Yeah. And, and in that same sympathetic way, I once heard somebody describe meditation. It might have been you, but this was this was you, Dan. I think like sixty years ago when you, we talked about this on, I think, a, like a phone call or something, a really long time ago. Yeah, was you that said this? That think of if you're having trouble getting your head around meditation, think of it as standing on a bridge, looking into a river, trying not to catch fish. That was not me. Pretty good though, huh? That's really good. As just as a way of going, like you keep trying to do this thing. Well, your job instead, think about your job is to not catch a fish. Don't even try. There's nothing to try. Just stand there and watch the fish. Hmm. You're, you're <laughs> and what if you just sat and just listened? Um, this is, I hope to God, this is the hippiest incense California episode of the show we ever do. But there's something to a lot of this, which is that um, there, the room for improvements in any of the stuff, whether it's your work or your life or any of this stuff, I think really it does help, whether you agree with my roof analogy or not, it does help to understand what the problem is. And there may not even really be a problem. There may, you may not even really understand what's there. You may not even know who you really are. And, you know, certainly if you're trying to fix a non-problem or an unproblem or a er problem, then you can't be really surprised that it didn't work out. You know, you're just, you're using your plunger to fix the roof. I don't know. I'm not sure what my point is. Um, I, I do think sometimes that in the midst of all this run, 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 faster, 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 learn, 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 read, 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 it does help sometimes just to stop. And you could even stop for 10 minutes. It could be the 10 minute walk. Um, some people, I understand a lot of people say you shouldn't start with walking meditation because you'll get a lot more out of it if you do regular meditation first, mm. but you don't even have to be a hippie. Nobody even has to know you're being mindful. Like what if you just gave yourself a really, really modest goal of like, well, the first thing I'm going to do is my job is by Saturday morning, I'm going to wake up Saturday morning. I don't need to think about it until then. But on Saturday morning, when I wake up, I'm going to realize something that I didn't realize before. I don't know what that is yet. But I'm just going to give myself permission to wake up Saturday morning and realize something I didn't realize. Sounds stupid now, but just you wait till Saturday morning because you'll go, oh, that's interesting. That's a really little small thing that might really unlock a huge thing, you know? And if you think and think and think and think and you think you can think, you think, 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 then all you're doing is adding noise to that echo chamber. You're creating a lot more noise than signal because sometimes uh, the rests are really as important as the notes. I like that. Yeah, should button this up. What do you think? What do you think, Dan? Are you being silent? Being mindful? I, I, I was. No, I was just thinking about the way that 
this concept of you know i i think there's a confusion so i just i just added a couple links to the show notes i think a lot of people think mindfulness means being in the moment navel navel gazing (laughs) i think they think it means being being in the moment and and uh you know it's like the the feeling you have after you go on i don't know i've never skydive but skydiving or you know being on a roller coaster or whatever it is that you makes you feel completely fully alive and you're like wow what that's not really what mindfulness is and or, or it's or it's or the other one the other one is i'm sorry to interrupt you but the other one is like as 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 anybody will tell you when you're trying to learn meditation is like you the object here is not to clear your mind right you're not trying to become like somebody you've seen a statue of surprisingly enough you're just there to observe right it's about observing and and being present and being uh there there's a term they use a lot in in uh the thai farce tradition of of uh Theravada Buddhism, which is uh, uh, something like being, like they talk about ardency along with mindfulness, which uh, is ardency. Ardency. I, I've never heard that word it's as in word. to be ardent. Correct. A kind of like ardent as in like ardent love. I, I guess. Or true. It's like true. Like, um, hmm. I wonder if that's like agape love. Ardency. God, all of a sudden we're like some podcast nobody listens to from a really obscure Southern University. <laughs> well, now let me just explain one thing: is uh, Acts is not Romans, and Romans is not Acts. Agape love is not. That's from oh, uh, oh. Uh, now, uh, Saint Saint Augustine, you know, city on a hill. So, oh, uh, now David Hume. <laughs> God, I hate myself so much. Ardency, 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 expressing or characterized by warmth of feeling, passionate, as in an ardent lover. Not to be confused with Argent, which was uh, by the keyboard player from the Zombies, who did the classic song "Hold Your Head Up." Yeah, different. <clears throat> Rod Argent, not ardent. But they they talk about that, and they they it's so so anyway. I, I put a couple of links to um, one of my favorite books called "Mindfulness in Plain English," which is all you. you oh, it's such a good book. All that's you a Bonte, need, that's Bonte G, right? Bonte G. All you need to to get in understanding everything we're talking about. It's all in that book. You can I put the link to the free version on there that, too, because there's an online version. Dianetics. I should put a link in for that. Do you remember Bob Goldthwaite? Mm-hmm. Love that guy. He used to. I remember back in 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 his heyday. I remember there was a he did an HBO special and they in the promo clip for that which they would show every thirty or forty minutes on HBO, <laughs> uh, he would say in his characteristic sort of screaming yelling uh, voice, "I am a living example of Dianetics." It's always <laughs> my favorite fu- quote. He's by even him. funnier. He's like Stephen Wright, where like once he once you've heard him not doing his bit, you enjoy his bit more. Yeah, yeah. That he that he can turn it on and off. Yeah. You know what I mean. All right. Well, you know, personally, I, I, I'm not that worried about the show running long, but I, I don't want to make people in Chicago mad, so we should button it up. Yeah, we don't want to get Syracuse up and in arms about this one. Oh, was he? Is he's decided he's he's uh he's drinking the flavor aid on the time issue. Yeah. Sounds like Marco. Sounds like Marco's not worried about. It. No, no, wait a minute. No, I, no, I didn't listen to the whole epi, but but at the beginning, John was saying that he did he didn't think that was no. Relevant. He doesn't care. He could he could go as long as he wants. Yeah. Well, I think we should. I think this is good enough. Yeah, it was, it was good. good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. I love you. Love you too.